Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome back to uh, New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we are pleased and honored to have with us Professor Michael Mandelbaum. Professor Mandelbaum is Christian A. Herder, Professor of History and the Director of the American Foreign Policy Program at John Hopkins University. He is the author of a good number of very well-received books, and today we are going to be speaking about his latest, The Rise and Fall of Peace on Earth, published by Oxford University Press. Uh, welcome, Professor Mandelbaum. Thank you. Good to be with you and your, and your audience. Uh, professor, what is the thesis of your book? The thesis of my book is that for the 25 years after 1989, that is, after the opening of the Berlin Wall, the world enjoyed an unprecedentedly peaceful era. And I explain why it was more peaceful than anything that had come before. But that peace ended after 25 years in or about 2014, because three important countries in three important areas of the world embarked on policies designed to give themselves dominance in those regions by the use of force. And those three countries are Russia in Europe, China in East Asia, and Iran in the Middle East. And the heart of the rise and fall of peace on earth is devoted to explaining how and why peace ended in those three regions as a result of those three countries. When you employ the phrase short peace, uh, would it be correct to assume that you're echoing John Lewis Gaddis's uh, famous uh, the long peace uh, phrase from the 80s? Well, in fact, the phrase that I use is deep peace. And uh, I argue that the peace of these 25 years was even deeper and more solid and more peaceful than the peace to which John Gaddis refers, that is, the Cold War era between about 1945 and 1990. The reason that I believe that the more recent peace was deeper and more peaceful is that during the Cold War, peace was the result of deterrence. It was the result of both the United States and the Soviet Union being very heavily armed, so heavily armed that neither dared start a war against each other. Whereas in the more recent period, the deep peace that I identify that began in 1989 and ended in 2014 came about not because uh, all important countries were afraid of war, but because none of them had a real interest in fighting a war. The, the phrase that uh, I use uh, to describe this deep peace stems from a, uh, a no parking sign I once saw uh, that said, don't even think of parking here. Well, for almost all of these 25 years, the important countries in the international system didn't really think about fighting a war. That is to say, they didn't make urgent preparations for war. They didn't expect war. War had fallen to the bottom of their international agendas, and that is historically unusual. In fact, I would say almost unique to these 25 years, whereas in the Cold War era, war was very much uppermost in the minds of American and Soviet policymakers, 
but they chose not to fight one, fortunately for all of us. Uh, you use the expression, uh, quote, three modern forces for peace, unquote. What exactly do you mean by that? Well, uh, that's an important part of the book. I, I believe that the deep peace that the world enjoyed in these 25 years was not an accident. It wasn't simply the result of an accidental confluence of factors following the end of the Cold War, which cannot be repeated. To the contrary, as you say, I see three important peace-promoting features having operated during that period. Uh, one of them was the benign hegemony of the United States. The United States was so far ahead of other countries militarily and politically that even countries that weren't all that happy about the American position in the world didn't dare challenge it militarily. The second major peace-promoting feature that I identify in the rise and fall of peace on Earth is economic interdependence. This was, after all, one of the great ages of globalization, and we know that countries that trade with and invest in one another on a large scale are very reluctant to go to war with one another because it costs them money. The third major peace-promoting feature that I discuss in the book is democracy. And it's important to note that by democracy, I mean two things. Democracy is, in my view, a hybrid form of government fusing two traditions that were long thought to be incompatible. And, and incidentally, it may interest your listeners to know that I wrote about this at some length in an earlier book called Democracy's Good Name. The two constituent parts of democracy are popular sovereignty, that is free, fair, and regular elections, but also liberty. And liberty comes in three varieties. There is economic liberty, that is private property that goes back to ancient Rome, religious liberty, freedom of worship, and third, political liberty, the rights embodied in the first 10 amendments to the American Constitution. And in the rise and fall of peace on earth, I note a number of ways in which democracy, as I define it, promotes peace. And uh, this era, the 25 years of the deep peace, was in addition to being one of the great ages of globalization, one of the great eras, probably the greatest era of democracy in the sense that democracy was a far more widespread form of government than ever before. So it was the unusually robust presence of benign American hegemony, international uh, economic interdependence, and global democracy that made these 25 years unusually, indeed, I argue, uniquely peaceful. Isn't uh, your argument in terms of the origins of Russian revanchism in Europe uh, a little bit post hoc when it posits that the, uh, this, this turn or change in Russian policy for what it was in the 1990s uh, was due primarily to the expansion of NATO. And that isn't there a counter-argument that, in, in point of fact, and to some degree, actually, in the book you make it, that it's more the intricacies of Russian domestic politics, uh, to use a German phrase, primate inin politik, uh, which caused uh, the Putin regime to uh, change policy in the after the year 2001, uh, and particularly beginning in the 2007-2008 with the Georgian War and events thereafter, which caused uh, Russia to assume a uh, anti-post-Cold uh, uh, War stance um, and, in fact, challenge the, the post-Cold War settlement. Uh, I argue in the rise and fall of peace on Earth that for each of the three so-called revisionist powers, Russia, China, and Iran, each of the three countries that broke the peace, 
an important motive, although not the only motive, was the need to find some source of domestic support, popularity, and legitimacy in the Russian and Chinese cases, uh, particularly because their economic prospects began to look less rosy. Um, and, I, and I believe that in that sense, the Fremont there in politic, as you say, was important. This was a common feature in all three regions where the peace ended, and it was an important feature, although not the only feature. In the Russian case, however, I do believe, and I argue in the book and have argued elsewhere and indeed argued at the time, that the expansion of NATO up to Russia's borders, contrary to promises that both Mikhail Gorbachev and Boris Yeltsin had been given by Western leaders, and with the assurance that Russia would never be allowed to join NATO, was at a minimum extremely unhelpful. I believed, and, and many others believed, during the 1990s when NATO expansion first took place, and when I say many others, I mean people, important people in the government as well, believed that the most important security task for the United States in the wake of the Cold War was to make sure that Russia continued on a peaceful and, if possible, democratic path. And the way to do that was to incorporate Russia into the European security order by excluding Russia, by telling Russia that it could never be part of the main European security order. The United States inadvertently gave to the Russian revisionists an issue that they could use to drum up domestic support by opposing the West and claiming that they were standing up to the predatory designs of the United States and its allies. If, on the other hand, we had done what I and uh, a number of other people, including, I, I think it's fair to say, the majority of people who knew Russia well at the time, had recommended, that is, to bring Russia in and to include Russia, we would have denied Putin one of the issues that he used to justify his invasion of Ukraine, and we would have gained leverage on Russia, which we did not, in, in, which we did not have in 2014. Now, all of this is counterfactual. We don't know what would have happened had things been different. And I do not argue in the book that if only the United States had pursued a more sensible policy toward Russia, that Russia would be a Scandinavian-style democracy. I think the trajectory of Russia's internal governance was largely determined by Russian features, by Russian history, the Russian economy, and Russian culture. But I do believe that if we had taken another course toward Russia in the 1990s, there would have been a far better chance than we actually had of preventing Russia from embarking on the policies that ended peace in Europe. So that is the sense in which I believe and argue in the rise and fall of peace on earth, that NATO expansion undertaken as it was, when it was, was a mistake. Uh, so it, uh, you would still um, posit then that, uh, as you put in the book, uh, the failure to invite Russia to join NATO was, quote, a lost opportunity, unquote. Uh, it was a lost opportunity. Uh, whether what we should have done was to include Russia in NATO or find some other form of organization that could include NATO while reassuring Russia's neighbors, which after all had good reason to be wary of Russia, I don't know. Uh, we can't go back and run the historical tape again, this time doing it differently, so we can never know what would have happened. But it seems to me that logic and history tell us that uh, a different course could have produced a better result. Not was certain to present to, to give us a better result, but had a, a good chance of giving us a better result. 
Uh, how important a variable in terms of determination of Russian policy um, after 2007 was the, or even before that, was uh, the fear of the spread of the so-called code revolutions? Those uh, revolutions were threatening to Putin, who by that time uh, was moving toward consolidating one-person rule and consolidating the type of government that Russia has, which can fairly, I think, be described and has been described in many quarters as a kleptocracy. Um, but, uh, and, and it was the need for domestic support that I think in no small part led him to invade Ukraine, claiming that the United States and the West after the Maidan revolution in Ukraine, we're planning to incorporate Ukraine into NATO and use it as a base from which to menace and possibly assault Russia, a claim that Putin made many times and which, of course, is false. Um, so uh, there's no doubt that the need to maintain power at all costs, the perceived need to generate popularity in order to maintain that power, uh, the absence of a rising price of oil to give Putin the economic resources to buy popularity, all of these combine to make a policy of aggressive nationalism appealing to him. But uh, what I argue in the book is if 15 years previously we had taken a different course, uh, Russia would have had a different relationship with the West, and the suspicions on which he was able to play, the fears that he was able to fan, would not have been as strong or might not have been present. Once it was decided to organize European security by excluding Russia, that gave Putin the opportunity to play on Russian fears and resentment that NATO expansion created, and he did so, and as I argue in the book, in no small part for his own personal political reasons. So that's the analysis that I present in The Rise and Fall of Peace on Earth. Uh, why did Putin react so differently to events in Ukraine in 2014 as opposed to the way he reacted in 2004? Well, uh, what I say in the book is that each of these cases, the Russian, Chinese, and Iranian cases, are different, they're complicated, they're multifaceted. That is why I have a long chapter on each country and each region. There's a long chapter devoted to what happened to and with Russia. But I would say that one important difference between the two revolutions in Ukraine and Russia's response to them was that in the first case, uh, the price of oil was still very high and the Russian regime could feel confident that it could buy the allegiance of the Russian people. By 2014, what had been a sky-high price of oil in Putin's first term in office, reaching as high as $125 a barrel, had been cut in half. Putin had far fewer resources with which to buy popularity. And it's important to note that the price of energy is crucial for Russia because it's, it, it is the only source of uh, Russian overseas earnings. Oil and gas are the only things that Russia makes that anybody else wants to buy. So uh, the price of oil is crucial to the political popularity and therefore the political stability of the Putin regime in the absence, of course, of democracy, which bestows a much more solid form of legitimacy. And it was the falling price of oil that I believe had a great deal to do with the decision to invade Ukraine. Turning towards the Orient, the Far East, uh, wouldn't, isn't in retrospect the case that American hopes for the democratization of the PRC were always somewhat fantastical in nature? Um, 
I don't, I wouldn't call them fantastical. I would say that they turned out to be at best overblown and at worst wrong. But uh, the, the hopes were based on the belief that economic growth would lead to the liberalization of the regime, the opening up of the society, a greater demand for political participation, and ultimately in some form of political democracy. Now, that is not what has happened in China so far, but uh, I think one has to make three points to, to qualify what I've just said. Uh, one is that historically we know that the richer countries get, the higher the per capita income, the greater the propensity to become a democracy. And that means, and this is the second point, although China has not traveled that road yet, it's not ruled out that ultimately it will do so. But it's certainly not doing that now. And the third point to make is that the, uh, the economic growth, the surging, remarkable, revolutionary economic growth that China experienced, beginning with the market reforms over which Deng Xiaoping presided in the early 1980s, have led to a more open, liberal China. The China today, although it is a dictatorship and unfortunately an increasingly repressive one, is a very far cry from the totalitarian regime over which Mao Zedong presided. It would, would have been unthinkable uh, in the Maoist era for Chinese students to study abroad, and now hundreds of thousands of them are doing so. The the engagement of China with the rest of the world is almost infinitely greater today than it was under Mao. So the hopes that the West and the United States entertain for the evolution of Chinese society and Chinese politics were not entirely misplaced, but they have certainly not led to the outcome for which all of us hoped. Um, but isn't the, the, in the case of the PRC, and actually you'll have the same issue in, in the case of Russia, isn't the um, uh, ethnic or national um, pressures on peripheral areas, in the case of the PRC, Tibet, Xianqing, to some degree in Inner Mongolia, uh, all make democratization in any real sense difficult because the uh, once a democratic regime would be set up, all of these places would put enormous pressure to secede from the PRC. In the case of yeah. uh, uh, in the case of the PRC, all these areas constitute probably close to 50 percent of this PRC's landmass. Uh, that is correct, and it's a point I make in my chapter on China and East Asia in the rise and fall of peace on earth. That is a problem uh, for the prospects for democracy in China. China, although we don't usually think of it as such, is a multinational empire. Uh, as you say, uh, part of uh, the Chinese population is non-Han Chinese. It's a relatively small percentage, less than 10% of 1.4 billion people, but uh, the homelands of the non-Chinese, the Tibetan Buddhists and the Uyghur Muslims, uh, constitute uh, not 50%, but depending on how you define it, close to 40% of Chinese Western territory. And for that reason, uh, the Chinese government is extremely wary of granting any political freedoms that could allow those people to agitate for full independence. So that is uh, a major, major stumbling block, stumbling block to democracy in China, along with the determination of the Chinese Communist Party to uh, keep its monopoly of power. Uh, in the last chapter of The Rise and Fall of Peace on Earth, I assess the prospects for democracy in Russia, China, and Iran, because I argue that of the three major peace-promoting features of the golden 25 years, democracy is the most potent. 
And therefore, the, uh, the development that could do most to restore a deep peace would be the advent of full-fledged democracy in Russia, China, and Iran. Now, uh, unfortunately, the outside world is not in a position to restore or to impose or to create democracy in any of those three countries. That has to be the work of the Russian, the Chinese, and the Iranian peoples. But it is possible, and this is what I do in the last chapter, to give something of a balance sheet setting out the forces promoting democracy in these three countries, and there certainly are such forces, but also listing the forces that push back against the advent of democracy, and they too exist and are formidable, and the multinational character of the Chinese state is one of them in the case of China. Uh, to what causes do you, do you attribute Chinese revisionism of the past uh, eight to ten years? Well, it has, I think, multiple causes. Uh, one of them is, I believe and argue, in common with Iranian and Russian revisionism, the dimming of the economic prospects uh, of the country. The regime presided over three decades of double-digit annual growth. That is a remarkable record and is responsible for much of the popularity that the Chinese Communist government enjoys, and it certainly does have some popularity in China. But in recent years, it's become clear that double-digit economic growth is a thing of the past. China is simply not going to be able to grow that rapidly, and it's therefore not going to be able to deliver to the Chinese people the kind of increases in their standard of living to which they've become accustomed. And that, I think, has made aggressive nationalism more popular, with more attractive to the regime. And the regime has manifested this aggressive nationalism most conspicuously in its claim to virtually all of the Western Pacific, contrary to international law, and to its project of building artificial islands in the Western Pacific and, contrary to the promises of its leaders, putting military facilities on them. So uh, economic slowdown is one reason for aggressive Chinese nationalism. There are others, one of which is the nature of Chinese nationalism, which is older and far more powerful than Russian nationalism, and which has traditionally taken the form that China is the natural dominant power in East Asia, and that it is the purpose of whatever government is in power in Beijing to restore Chinese dominance to the region. That, I think, goes beyond the particular needs of the Chinese communist government of the moment. So do you consider the situation in the Orient, the Far East, more or less dangerous than that in Europe or, for that matter, in the Middle East? Uh, over the long term, it's a more serious problem because China is actually and potentially a much more powerful country uh, than are either Russia or Iran. Uh, in the short term, I think that the situation in the Middle East is more explosive because Iran is far more aggressive, far more willing to use force, and has been more successful in achieving a measure of dominance in the region than have Russia in Europe or even China in East Asia. So in the long term, I think Chinese power is a problem, perhaps the major problem that the United States and other Asian countries face. In the short term, the chances of a war begun by Iranian aggression, and we've already seen that in its attack on Saudi oil facilities recently, that, I think, poses the most immediate danger of war. Do you advocate, uh, would you advocate the George Kennan-style containment policy vis-a-vis -vis the PRC? 
I do advocate containment toward each of these three countries. Uh, I've sketched out the uh, outlines of such a policy in the book and in more detail in the March-April issue of the journal Foreign Affairs, which incidentally is the journal in which George Kennan first proposed his containment strategy. Uh, I think a 21st century containment is the appropriate policy of the United States toward Russia, China, and Iran. Uh, but uh, I think that 21st century containment cannot be a carbon copy of containment during the Cold War because conditions have changed. For one thing, during the Cold War, the Soviet Union posed a, gro a global threat, whereas each of these three countries, at least so far, poses a challenge only in its own region. Uh, a second important difference is that during the Cold War, there was very little economic connection between the communist world and the United States, its friends and allies, and the international economic system that they created after World War II. Now, the three challengers are all part of that global economic order, and although Russia and Iran are relatively minor parts, all they do is export energy, and as we've seen, the world can easily do without Iran's oil. On the other hand, China is central to this uh, global economic order. That's why I say in the book that while the collapse of Chinese military power would be a great blessing for the world, the collapse of the Chinese economy would be a, a disaster. Uh, one final point about the 21st century form of containment that I recommend both in the rise and fall of peace on earth and in my foreign affairs article, the essential component of such a policy is coalitions. That is groupings of like-minded countries to work out common policies to resist the political designs and the military initiatives of the three revisionist powers. That means that now alliances are just as important as they ever were and perhaps more important. Uh, how... Um structural in nature is uh, Chinese revisionist policy. Uh, is it uh, by the nature of the regime itself, the system of power, or is it more the case that this is something which emerged more fully formed with the current um, uh, Chinese president, Hu, um, Jing, as opposed to his predecessor, Hu Jintao? I think it's partly the result of his particular personal ambitions. It's partly the result of Chinese economic conditions at the moment and the need for uh, some way to boost popularity other than double-digit economic growth. And it's partly uh, a product of Chinese nationalism, which goes back to the beginning of the century. And in fact, uh, in its particular form, in the form it takes now, to the middle of the 19th century and the beginning of Western encroachment on China, which the Chinese refer to as their century of humiliation, the desire to get even with the West and restore Chinese primacy in East Asia. All that said, however, I believe that a genuinely democratic Chinese government would not seek to pursue the expansion of its influence in ways unacceptable to its neighbors and by the use of force. Uh, China is going to be influential in East Asia and in the world, given its size and the size of its economy. But a democratic China would seek to exercise influence, I believe, in ways far more acceptable to other countries than is the case with communist China. Uh, how does the North Korean situation complicate matters in the Orient, the Far East? Well, the North Korean situation is dangerous in and of itself because you have a rogue regime 
uh, a, a totalitarian regime that now has nuclear weapons that can reach South Korea and Japan and may ultimately be able to reach the United States. China enters into the picture because China is the only country in a position to exercise sufficient pressure on North Korea to have a chance of getting it to give up its nuclear weapons. All of North Korea's oil and much of its food comes across the land border with China. So if China were to shut down the border, North Korea could collapse, and that gives China enormous leverage. And it seems to be the case that the Chinese have no particular use for the form of communism practiced in North Korea, nor are they particularly happy about North Korea having nuclear weapons, but they have not been willing to exercise the leverage they have for, I think, a variety of reasons, uh, one of which is that they are not unhappy with the problems that the North Korean nuclear force causes the United States. I think the Chinese goal is to get the United States to withdraw militarily from the Western Pacific so that China can be the dominant power there. And to the extent that they see the North Korean nuclear weapons capacity making American withdrawal more likely, they are happy to let it persist. How does or how did the um, security pillar um, in the Middle East differ from that in uh, the Far East and in Europe? Uh, well, uh, the, the Middle East differed from uh, East Asia and Europe during the golden years of peace in that those years were not really all that peaceful in the Middle East. Uh, in the Middle East, uh, you did not have two of the three major peace-promoting forces. You did have uh, benign American hegemony, although... Iran never accepted it as legitimate or normal uh, or something that they wished to support. But uh, there's almost no economic interdependence among the countries of the Middle East. Uh, many of them sell oil, but not to each other, rather to the West and to East Asia. And there has been uh, no democracy in that part of the world with, of course, the conspicuous exception of Israel, which is a friend of the United States and of democracy and of peace, but isn't large enough uh, to bring it about in that part of the world. So uh, in the Middle East, uh, you didn't have the deep peace that East Asia and Europe experienced. And that's why uh, I give the chapter devoted to the Middle East in the rise and fall of peace on earth, the title, The Hegemonic Truce. What obtained in the Middle East during these 25 years was not peace, but a truce largely enforced by American military primacy. On page 118 of the book, you make reference to, uh, quote, uh, Iran's revisionist campaign to achieve primacy in the Middle East, unquote. What exactly do you mean by that? I mean that Iran wishes to dominate the Middle East politically and militarily, uh, and it has taken effective steps to do so. By the use of proxies, it has gained almost complete control of Lebanon through the terrorist organization Hezbollah, which is sponsored, trained, equipped and paid by Iran, uh, it does, it, it, it exercises the same sponsorship over powerful militias in, um, in Iraq. And in Syria, it has troops on the ground that help to keep the regime of uh, Assad in power. Uh, it's also sponsoring one side of the civil war in Yemen. Uh, it is trying to surround Israel with military forces so as to neutralize the country that constitutes its chief opposition in the region. Uh, and it is trying to subvert the governments of the oil-producing 
Arab countries of the Persian Gulf, especially Saudi Arabia, which it attacked directly a few weeks ago. So this is a full-fledged campaign, including the use of force, to achieve dominance that Iran has been pursuing ever since the revolution of 1979 brought the highly ideological and aggressive Islamic Republic to power. But it has been far more successful in the last 15 or 20 years, ironically, in no small part, because the United States unintentionally did Iran the favor of defeating its principal regional adversaries, with, of course, the exception of its most prominent adversary, Israel. The United States removed the Taliban government from Afghanistan, which was strongly opposed to Iran. It then ousted Saddam Hussein, who was uh, who fought a bloody, almost decade-long war with the Islamic Republic. And the United States was instrumental in crushing the terrorist state, the Islamic fundamentalist state of ISIS, which was also strongly anti-Iranian. So for American reasons, and in many cases for good reasons, the United States removed many of the barriers Move unintentionally many of the barriers to Iranian expansion over the last two decades. You seem highly critical of the Middle Eastern policies of the Obama administration. Why is that? Uh, the, the Obama administration made a very bad deal with Iran over its uh, nuclear weapons program, uh, a deal that uh, really did not seriously impede Iran's long-term prospects for acquiring nuclear weapons. That deal uh, had several major flaws. First, it abandoned what had been the central pillar of American nonproliferation policy for four decades, namely the position that countries such as Iran should not be allowed to enrich uranium. That because enriching uranium is the crucial and most difficult step in making a bomb. Obama just abandoned that without ever announcing it. Second, the inspection provisions for the deal, the, the opportunities that the rest of the world has to make sure that Iran is not continuing its nuclear weapons program, were unfortunately weak. And third, the provisions in the deal blocking Iranian nuclear weapons were time-limited, and when they expire, Iran is perfectly free to pursue nuclear weapons. Moreover, it said nothing about Iran's ballistic missile program, which is going full speed ahead, and nothing about Iran's militant and military efforts to take over the region. It looked very much as if what the Obama administration wanted to do was just get out of the Middle East and uh, to borrow a phrase that the Nixon administration used for Vietnam, uh, it looked as if the Obama administration just wanted a decent interval between the time of the American exit from the Middle East and the time at which Iran got nuclear weapons so that it, the Obama administration, couldn't be blamed for this disaster. Moreover, we've seen with the reimposition of sanctions by the United States that the global community had much greater leverage over Iran than the administration was willing to use. So I believe, although of course this is counterfactual and cannot be proven, but I do believe that a more determined administration, one that was more concerned about containing Iran than in getting the United States out of the Middle East, could have gotten a better deal. And I certainly hope that the, uh, the, that the Trump administration or its successor can get a better deal, can improve on the Iran deal that the Obama administration negotiated. Uh, if the agreement, the 2015 agreement with uh, Iran was so um, weak in terms of uh, effectively stopping its nuclear aspirations, why do uh, our European partners, Germany, France, and the UK, are so still insistent upon uh, retaining the agreement? 
two responses to that. First, uh, not all of them were happy with it at the time. The French were very unhappy with what they regarded as a very weak negotiating strategy of the Obama administration. Second, while the, uh, the Europeans never want to rock the boat, uh, in the wake of the Iranian attack on Saudi Arabia, you've seen their position shift and their rhetoric change. They're no longer talking as they did before about conciliating Iran. There's uh, evidence that their view of Iran, of the dangers that it poses and of what ought to be done, are moving closer to the American position. Although you don't really discuss in the book, would it be correct to say that you're not entirely unenthusiastic about the Middle Eastern policies of the Trump administration? Well, I do think that uh, the Trump administration was right to withdraw from the deal in the sense that it seemed to me that given the parameters of the deal, Iran was going to proceed toward nuclear weapons and continue its efforts to achieve regional dominance. And the United States would then be forced at some point to confront a miserable choice between actually stopping Iran or allowing Iranian nuclear weapons and Iranian domination of the Middle East, which could have catastrophic consequences, not just for the Middle East, but because the world's oil comes from that part of the world for the whole world and therefore for the United States. And it seemed to me that given this prospect, there was a lot to be said for uh, withdrawing from the deal and confronting Iran sooner rather than later. We're in a stronger position now than we would be five years from now. That said, I have been critical and have written articles critical of the Trump administration for the way it has gone about uh, doing this. Uh, it should have made a much greater effort to achieve a common position toward Iran with the Europeans before withdrawing from the deal. Uh, it should have uh, put forward a position uh, that would be uh, a, that, that would describe the conditions in which the United States was willing to withdraw sanctions. And those conditions, I would have hoped, would include an open-ended ban on Iranian nuclear weapons and some limits on its ballistic missile program. I think uh, with serious diplomacy, there's a chance that the Europeans might have signed up to such a position. And even if they hadn't, they would have been far more sympathetic to the United States than they have been. Uh, so I think that what the act of withdrawal required was a good deal of surrounding diplomacy in which this administration, unfortunately, did not engage. Uh, why do you believe that, as you put in the book, quote, restoration of the post-Cold War peace is possible, unquote? Well, I think it's possible because it is possible to restore the conditions that made it possible in the first place. Uh, the United States is still a strong military power. Economic interdependence is still a fact of life. And most importantly, I believe and argue in the rise and fall of peace on earth that if Russia, China, and Iran were to become full-fledged democracies, incorporating both popular sovereignty and the protection of liberty, the world would be a far more peaceful place. That's why I say that the message of this book is both optimistic and pessimistic. Uh, there's good news and bad news. The good news is that we have a formula for peace. It's global democracy. The bad news is that we have no idea how to implement this formula Implementation depends on the people of Russia, China, and Iran, and when and indeed whether they will bring democracy to their countries is something that we do not and cannot know. So per se, from your perspective, there are no structural impediments preventing democratization of these three countries in the future? 
I, I don't think it's the case that any country is positively and forever immune to democracy. Uh, so I think it is possible for democracy to take hold anywhere. That being said, however, one of the things that we've learned over the last 30 years when a democratic wave has installed democracy in far more countries than ever before is that there are social, economic, and cultural preconditions for democracy. Uh, the, the, the flower of democracy requires fertile soil. And for the soil to become fertile can take time. It can take generations. How does this happen? How do countries become uh, equipped to manage democracy? Well, I, I go into that at some length in my earlier book, Democracy's Good Name. I do think, as I argue in that book, that the existence of a market economy can be very important in paving the way for democracy. And because China does have something of a market economy, and Russia has a market economy as well, although a very corrupt one and one in which the government exercises a great deal of control, I think we can say that some of the forces that conduce toward democracy are at work in those two countries but how fast they will work and whether they will ever be able to prevail and to bring democracy into these countries, uh, we simply don't know and I'm afraid cannot know. Uh, if you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Uh, the one thing I would say is that uh, the problems we have in the world today stem in no small part from the domestic politics and specifically from the dictatorial governments of important countries around the world. The message is dictatorship is bad for peace, democracy is good for it. Well, on that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Mandelbaum, for being uh, so kind as to speak to us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor. Thank you.